the Acts of the Apostles in your Bible or smartphone. Acts of the Apostles, I will be reading Acts chapter 15, verse 12 through verse 29. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, Listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, in Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements." that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, historical word to our hearts and minds. Let's pray. Holy Father, by your Holy Spirit, by what is written, and by your grace in helping me be faithful to the passage, let us see. Let us see the importance of what is here. And let us see the relevance of it for every one of us who are believers today. Do it, I ask, to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, to the purification of your bride, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Last week, of course, we saw the first part of this passage and the sermon well I guess to say the least it was it was strong it was black and white it was dogmatic about not compromising on the theology of the gospel it was clear 
from this passage that there is no place for unity with professing Christians who deny justification or salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works of performance that we the sinner do. And the reason is because that issue is a core, central salvation issue of how can people be saved by Jesus. That is not peripheral. There are a lot of peripheral things that are not central for all of us who are believers. That one is central. And that's why last week's sermon very black and white. But now, we who are Christians must be careful. For 2,000 years, and with all of us, maybe in our own lives, there have been this temptation to take the attitude of what is central, salvific, the gospel, and taking that black and white attitude and just transferring it to all kinds of other Important issues that are not at the center, but treating them with the same black and whiteness towards other believers. In other words, taking that attitude towards what is the gospel to areas of conscience where someone else's conscience may be a little different than mine or yours. Or to just culture and cultural Differences. Why would they do it that way? This is the only way to do this. And therefore, it can grow in us believers to the point where, you know, if you disagree with him on any minor point of doctrine or liturgy in church or what movies you should see or not see, well, then that person must be somehow unfaithful. Less serious about Jesus and about the Scripture. I can't believe it. You baptize infants? Do you read your Bible? You don't baptize infants? Don't you believe in the covenant? What's the matter with you? You sing songs in church that do not come straight out of the book of Psalms in the Bible, but some present day Christian with a poetic gift construed new words? I don't know about that. You use drums? We didn't this morning. That was unusual. Oh, but by the way, thank you. With all these people gone today and on vacation, uh, as you stepped up, Peter and Alex, that was beautiful and wonderful. And thanks for leading us. But, and you didn't have an electric guitar, but sometimes people might have a problem with that. You only sing hymns in church? You only sing brain-dead three-chord choruses. You raise your hands like a crazy, unthinking, charismatic when you worship God on a Sunday morning. You don't raise your hands? You're sure you're worshiping God? You had a glass of wine at dinner? Are you sure you're saved? You ate a steak? When that cow was killed at the temple of Zeus, and then you went and bought it, and now you're going to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol? And on and on and on it goes with us Christians. Spiritual maturity 
requires that we stand firm when it comes to core essential truths of the gospel of salvation. And that same maturity requires that on non-essential matters where godly people may differ, we put love over our differences. We put unity over disagreement. Yes, last week we saw at the council there in Jerusalem, it taught us very, very clearly there are issues where it is absolutely wrong to elevate unity at the cost of compromising the gospel of Jesus itself. The only thing that saves people. No unity on that issue. But now, as we continue in the passage this morning, it goes on to illustrate that there are times when conceding to others' consciences is right. It's good. It's wise. And it is loving. That is, only when the giving in to others does not compromise essential, biblical, doctrinal, central truth. And it's done out of a spirit of care and love in order to avoid needlessly offending others. So remember last week what led to this Jerusalem council? You can see at the beginning of chapter 15 of Acts, verses 1 and 2. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, the church there, mostly Gentiles. They're teaching these new Christians. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, a huge one, and a debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so we saw that at the Jerusalem council last week, Peter stood up and he clearly laid out the doctrine of salvation, of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. And you're saved not adding your works to it. And therefore, what they were saying is, this in-house of the home-based Jerusalem church, there's a sect within the church, that particular Christian sect that was preaching, no, 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 you believe in Jesus, His death and His resurrection, yes, but now you must go on and add to your faith works of Mosaic law, they clearly stated that Christian sect was dead wrong and they are to be rejected. That was the decision of the apostles and the elders and the church at large. It was Christian maturity that led Paul and Barnabas to not set aside the crucial truth of how sinners are saved. To, to, in other words, do it for the sake of unity and, and love. Those who differ with you, Paul and Barnabas, on that issue, no way. They had a huge falling out over it and debate with these professing Christians. And so we saw Peter stood up in his argument as we saw last week then, in our passage now, silenced those of that particular Christian sect, at least during the meeting. We know that group was never silenced over the next number of decades. And then, after Peter was done, Paul and Barnabas get up and they talk about what happened the last two years in their missionary journey and how God was confirming their gospel preaching 
with signs and wonders. And their point is very clear, that the gospel of justification by faith alone, apart from works, God was putting a stamp of approval on it by miracles and healings and signs and wonders through him and Barnabas in their missionary journey. And then they sit down, and then James gets up. This is Jesus' half-brother, the one who wrote the epistle of James in the New Testament, and he takes the floor, and what he does is he affirms what Peter has just said, backing up the true gospel, and he does it with a quote from Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 to 12. And then, this is where the kicker comes in. James, out of concern to not needlessly offend the Jews throughout the Roman Empire, he listed four things these Gentile Christians should not do. And then when everyone agreed with James's wisdom, the church in Jerusalem chose two elders from that church to return with Paul and Barnabas up to Antioch and then to the other cities delivering the results written in that letter. The reason they did that was to protect Paul and Barnabas, to protect them against the false accusations which were sure to come in every city where this particular Christian sect had men always saying, well, Paul and Barnabas, they're slanting what really happened in Jerusalem. They shut the door on that because two Jerusalem leaders, elders, were sent with them. And they're going to be doing the main speaking as they deliver the elder. Not so. The apostles and the elders in Jerusalem totally affirm what Barnabas and Paul are preaching and what's in this letter. And the result, Luke tells us, is that the Gentiles, in hearing it, were thrilled, really encouraged. And unity in the churches between Jews and Gentiles was preserved for a while. Now, so our passage now, it does illustrate for us there are times when we believers should make concessions to others for the sake of love. And so let's think through that issue now for the rest of our time as we think through this passage. So first we saw last week, and we see it now again in our text this week. It is never okay to make concession with those who compromise essential truth in God's holy word. Start with verse 12. Peter has just finished giving his speech. And we pick up. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written in Amos 9. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. So, James sees the promise of God to restore true worship. Worship like David, a born again, Holy Spirit indwelt man. True worship 
to the Jews. That's good. And also in the text, to non-Jews, to the Gentiles. And so he quotes it to support what he, James, had just said, which is essentially this. God is the one who chose to save uncircumcised Gentiles through Peter's preaching in Cornelius' house. And Amos, chapter 9, verses 10 to 11, foretold just that. James is convinced that Gentiles, without having to convert to Judaism, through circumcision and kosher diet keeping, festivals and new moons and all of these cultural, religious, mosaic laws that Gentiles are perfectly accepted into the people of God with us Christian Jews. That's his point. Now first, just briefly, he quotes Amos. What was the context of Amos? In, in Amos and in Amos 9, what's happening there is this pronouncement, God is going to bring judgment upon you, Israel, for your sin. And then what happens, it transitions to this focus. After that, God's going to rescue you. He's going to rebuild you as a spiritual Hope-filled people. And so the whole point of Amos is that God's people, they fall into sin, into ruin, and then God's judgment. And now, at that point in Amos, is that God will come and restore them, and repair them, and rebuild them with true worship like David. But not just the Jews, according to Amos, but the nations, the non-Jews, the Gentiles also will come alive and seek the Lord. And James, he sees at the, his own present moment in history, that is exactly what God is doing through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, he is taking a remnant a portion of us Jews and opening our eyes to see the gospel. And we're saved and we're made alive. He has restored us. Look, that's you, Paul, and Barnabas, and Peter, and John, and me, James, Jesus' brother. Look what he's done. It's fulfilling that. That's what it's about in Amos. But not just that. That's what he's also doing, like in Cornelius' house. And throughout these different cities in the region of Galatia that Paul and Barnabas just evangelized with all these Gentiles coming to him, God is doing that. That's his point. And so what they're doing, again here now, is that James, the apostles, and the elders, the leaders, they're making it clear that this particular Christian sect within the Jerusalem church that is spreading out throughout the known Roman Empire, they're wrong. Their theology is to be rejected. The gospel of justification, being forgiven of your sins and made right with God, is God's grace. And it's grace alone. And the means for being justified is through your trusting in Christ. Faith alone. That, they are declaring, is never to be compromised in the name of unity. It is the only way of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles. If they or if we today compromise that gospel, we have given up the very essence of Christianity. Any ecumenical or any other kind of unity that is arrived at over that kind of compromise is not Christian 
unity. Now, just briefly, look, you can throw in a couple core doctrines. You can throw in clearly the doctrine of Scripture is inerrant, infallible, breathed out by God. There's no compromise on that. It's the foundation of Christianity. You can throw in the very nature of God, His Holy Trinity. You compromise on that, it's all come crumbling down. You can throw in the full deity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ in one person. You can throw in, His death on the cross wasn't this great example purely or only. His death on the cross was atoning for sin. He was the propitiatory sacrifice. And you definitely have to throw in the bodily, physical, historical resurrection of Christ, his ascension, and his future second coming. There is to be no concession on these essentials, particularly in the name of unity. No. But now, as we move on in the passage, concession on other issues at times may be the right thing, may be the good thing, because it's good when it is for the sake of loving others in order not to be a stumbling block to them or in order not to needlessly offend them. Begin with verse 19. James says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. That's the whole point. That's the rejection of the Judaizing gospel of, of faith plus works equals salvation. No. But what we should do is this. Write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Then he says why. Here's why. For, meaning because, meaning the reason for this is that from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay. James sums up his judgment First affirming that the Gentiles should not be forced to adhere to the laws of Moses, be circumcised, eat kosher, etc., in order to be saved. And then he mentions four things that Gentile Christians should abstain from doing for the sake of not offending Jewish communities that do exist in essentially every city of the Roman Empire at this time. You have to, the, the population of Jews, I don't know what it is in America, it's below, I don't know what it is in America, I don't know, 1%, 2%, if even that. The population of Jews in the Roman Empire was 10%. Huge. And he's saying in every city there are Jews in Jewish communities whom we want to reach. Many of them are unbelieving and on their way to hell. So for their sake, new believers in Christ who have a freedom, we'll see that, they have a freedom to eat meat or this blood thing is not a moral issue. Would you refrain That's what he's saying. The reason, well, let me just, it's, here's, here's the tricky part of this passage, right? If you're thinking through it. Three of those things are not central doctrinal issues for Christians. They're not moral issues. One of them is. Okay, so what he's saying is that these three, which are not sinful in and of themselves to do. He says, abstain from them. 
Why? Because he's taking the social situation into account. To, to seek to not needlessly and insensitively offend Jews. James is saying that the reason these Gentiles should abstain from these four behaviors is simply because there are a lot of Jews in your city. Therefore, be sensitive to their culture on such issues in order that you don't slam the door of your getting an avenue to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. They also need to be saved. And I think also, Gentile Christians, not to offend new Jewish Christians in your churches now, in your communities in these cities, and thus cause a needless division. Go out of your way. And so that's what the letter that they construct is about in order to send it to all the Gentile Christians. Verse 22. Luke says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men of the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us here in Jerusalem and troubled you with words, this false doctrine of you must be circumcised, added to your faith in Jesus, or you cannot be saved. No, 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 no. They're unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction to go to you and to say these things. So, therefore, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord or in agreement to choose men and to send them to you. They're standing right before you right now. Okay? with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than, than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. The tone of this letter is very encouraging to these Gentile believers. It affirms and tells them that these professing Christians with this twist on the gospel were wrong. These persons that are threatening hell on you Christians, if you don't do what they say, are wrong. Don't listen to them. It's highly encouraging to them, Luke tells us. And then, the request there of abstaining from these four particular behaviors, it doesn't come with a, or you cannot be saved kind of tone to it. Because that's not the issue. It's more of a, it's a gentle wisdom request. Do this, would you? This is our judgment as leaders. Can you do this? Put down some of your freedom Freedom from your culture as Gentiles who have now come to Jesus and you're saved. And oh yeah, he's correcting all and he's working on you and all kinds of moral issues. But can, can you put down some of your cultural things that are so natural to you for the sake 
of love, of evangelism, of unity to those who come into the church, who their culture was Jewish. Things contaminated by idols or sacrificed to idols. It referred to, to the normalcy and the culture of all of these Gentiles in every city throughout the Roman Empire. You want to have beef shish kebabs and lamb chops and a nice steak. And where do they always get it? Down at the temple? Or after the animal was sacrificed to Zeus or Hermes or Athena or Artemis or whatever it is. They don't throw the meat away. They take it down the Ralphs or Vaughn's and they sell it in the meat department. But now with the gospel coming and bringing Jews and Gentiles together, you do that and after church, it's going to shish kebabs back. Back. Someone's house there, they're having the meeting in. That would be very offensive to some new Christian Jews. And as we know later from other teachings in the New Testament, it'll become offensive to even some new Gentile converts. Even though the eating of that meat sacrificed to an idol is not inherently sinful to do. Then he's blood and things strangled. That referred to eating meat that had not been killed properly by draining all the blood from it as the Jewish dietary laws require in Genesis and in Leviticus. Life is in the blood. I would never do that. Standard for these Gentiles. And then there's the last item. Sexual immorality, porneia. How would, it clearly refers to the way that the Gentiles would have understood that word, the way it's being used here, meaning any sexual relations with another person outside of marriage. Point A. Why does he say that, though? The other three are not moral like this. Sexual immorality, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, is clear throughout the New Testament for a forbidden practice for all Christians, Jew. Or Gentile? I think the answer is simply this. That sexual immorality, even, even the way our culture now is going over the last five years, we're still nowhere close. Sexual immorality in the Roman Empire with the Gentiles was such a commonly okay, accepted practice just embedded in their culture of the time. So much so that much of the religion had to do with temple sacrifices, plenty of prostitutes right there connected with it. You don't know this, but if you go to Europe, you go to a place like France, you're a little bit, you're middle class, upper class. It is just, it, it's, it's normal. Yeah, you're married, now who's your mistress? Well, she's over here. Very much like that. No, not a big deal. There's no judgment against it. It's just part of their culture. And so these persons are coming to faith in Jesus. We don't get whitewashed, right? All of a sudden, shoop, clean slate, computer is wiped clean, there's no memory. We come from families and cultures, etc. They're coming out of that kind of life. And the apostles and the, the elders, knowing their care of evangelism of Jews and all of these cities, knew that that issue, instead of waiting for, you know, months on end for, to get this through the heads of these new Gentile believers, this needed to be nipped in the bud as soon as possible when these Gentiles convert or it would really ruin open doors of evangelism to unbelieving Jews in town. That's why I think he adds it.
All right, that's our passage. So then I'm going to end, meaning the second half of this sermon. So don't get your hopes up. It's going to be two minutes. What can we, right now, today, in our lives, learn from this? First is this. Out of love for the lost. There are times when we should not do culturally offensive things that would cause the lost to really close up to us as a Christian, to hearing the gospel. What I mean is this. That is exactly the issue that the Apostle Paul was dealing with when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 these words, starting with verse 19. For though I, Paul, am free from all. Got to get the word free up against non-free means slave. I'm free from all. I have made myself a slave of all. So that I might win more of them to Jesus. So he gives examples. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Okay, stop. When Paul goes to Jerusalem, he will, he will, okay, let's take the money, let's go to the temple, let's pay the vow money, let's shave the head, let's do that stuff. He's with the Jews. He doesn't go in there eating bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches and baby back ribs while he's in Jerusalem. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of Christ, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul, in other words, was always sensitive to the cultural backgrounds of those he was trying to reach with the gospel. He was conscious of trying not to do anything that would put a barrier in the way of reaching them with the gospel. And throughout history, this is something that missionaries have always had to try to figure out so that they wouldn't put barriers to this cross-cultural situation that they find themselves in. And that takes knowing the Bible really well in order to discern which issues are merely cultural and which issues cannot be compromised on because they're moral and they're central and must be confronted. I mean, so for instance, if you're a Christian missionary trying to reach some African tribe in 1870 and you get there and they all, I know this is not that big of a deal nowadays, but you know, when I was growing up it was. Okay, so, and they all have bones shoved through their nose. Don't even mention it. So what? It's totally different culture, as foreign as it is. You know, because there's always a temptation to make them westernized in the way that our civilization has grown and we do things this way. That is not a huge deal. Preach the gospel to them. It's their culture. Okay. But if their culture also teaches them that when you get the, ooh, there's a good opportunity every time to murder 
a neighbor tribes person in order to collect more heads, that's not merely a cultural issue. Those persons, if they convert to Christ, must quickly be taught that is wrong, that is evil. Jesus will forgive all of your sins, even of murder. But now as you come to him, come to him and you must stop this practice. That's the first thing that we learn that discern between which is central, cultural. We have intercultural things just living in America so that you don't put undue burdens or barriers between you and someone who needs Christ. And then secondly, it's very closely related to that, but it is distinct, and that is this is what we learn. Out, out of love for fellow Christians, we should choose not to do morally permissible things. Sometimes, in order not to lead weaker, more immature Christians into sinning against their consciences. For instance, like the confusion that new, just kind of try to put yourself there, that new Jewish Christians here in the first century that they would feel after they worshiped the Lord, there was Bible reading and there was a Bible study and being taught and now let's go over here and have lunch and they go out there and right before them they know exactly what it is, this beautiful steak that was sacrificed at the temple of Zeus. They are <laughs> Their whole life is a Jew and they got the one God stuff right. Be sensitive. Why I say that because that's exactly part of what Paul, and it's second part for a minute because it's not just with Jews, but it's even with other Gentiles, deals with in Romans chapter 8. Let me read a portion of it. Paul writes, I'll start with verse 4. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols in the temple, down the road there, Artemis, Zeus, eating the food that was sacrificed to an idol, to a false god, Paul says this, we know, here's knowledge, that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no, there is no God but one God. We know that down to verse 7. However, not all are there yet. That's what he means. Not all possess this knowledge. But some through former association with alcohol. I'll get there in a minute. But some with former association with idols, they eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. They're not where you're at. I know there's no God. It's not a big deal. It's not a moral issue. And you're right. That person ain't there. Eat it. And they can't disassociate it from partaking of the sacrifice to one of these Greek gods. Paul goes on. He says, look, food, it will not commend us to God. We are not worse off if we do not eat. And we're no better off if we do eat it. But take care. Here's the, here's the point. Take care that this right of yours, Christian, take care that this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, your maturity, your understanding, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. And thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their consciences when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And therefore, Paul says, if food eating of a particular kind, sacrificed, in other words, in a temple, if that makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat in his presence again, lest I make my brother stumble. In other words, he's saying some Christians, they felt free to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And in Christ, they did have that freedom. They were not violating any moral command of God. Like, do not commit sexual immorality. Or, do not be a drunkard. Those are moral commands. They were not committing any of that by eating. No problem. But, he's saying, there were some weaker Christians whose consciences would be violated if they ate the meat. In other words, they, they had not had enough time and growth and understanding of the gospel and its working out by the Holy Spirit and in Christian community. They haven't had enough time to work through that issue. It was so embedded in their culture on one side in order to know that it was not inherently sinful to eat the meat. And not only that, see, many of them, their whole life, they lived as pagan, temple-going, paying money, offering the sacrifice, give me some of my meat now, and eating it. That was their Christless life. That's your culture. And then they hear the gospel. And their eyes are opened by new birth, the miracle of God's sovereign grace. And they love Jesus. They can see the glory of God in Christ. They love the scripture. Oh. And they also, therefore, at 36 years old, I've come. They hate the lie and the deception of their old lives of Zeus worship, or Hermes, or Artemis. Or take your pick. They, they realize there's only one God, and Jesus Christ is the Son, and He saved me. So for them, they're new Christians to eat such meat. It was so closely tied to their former, darkened, Christless lives that the last thing in the world their consciences would allow them to do is, let me just eat meat that just got sacrificed to Artemis. They're just thinking, why in the world would I want to do that? I love Jesus now. There's other ways to get meat. And so out of care and out of concern and out of love for their brothers and sisters in Christ Paul tells the more mature the stronger Christians to give up give up eating that meat in the presence of weaker conscience Christians why so that those weaker Christians whom you're supposed to love so that you in your own freedom, I'm free, there's nothing sinful about that. 
You got hang-ups. He says, watch it. You may be free, but if you have the you got hang-ups issue, you may be the cause of causing them to sin because their conscience concerning eating that meat is not where yours is. And if you are the one causing them to sin against their conscience, you're sinning, as Paul said, against Christ. Because if they ate that same meat you ate, they would be sinning. Because they're sinning against their conscience. And of course, that's meat sacrificed to idols. There are all kinds of issues going on in the first century church. Paul lists a number of them in Romans 14. No time to read through it. I can't believe you don't take this day. I'm just going to do it anyway, all right? It's so special. Why wouldn't you? I don't know. I don't. They just all seem alike to me. I love Jesus in all days equally. We differ, okay? And you can go on and on. So, let's just then, we bring up one issue. Let's think about the freedom. And there's a free, I say freedom because many younger people, millennials, do not know this, probably, about American evangelicalism coming out of fundamentalism in these last 140, 50 years, where the alcohol issue with when AA was started and when the women's temperance movement, et cetera, and we even had a ban on even the producing and selling of alcohol in this country and in, in, in the Constitution as an amendment. <laughs> didn't work real well. And so people would come to Jesus and just lost drunks. And, and what happened is, here's an easy way to deal with that issue. And this is where it goes over in legalism. We even put in our church covenant that if you ever allow a touch of beer, your lip or a sip of wine, you're sinning. And, and that's how many people were even brought up in Pentecostalism and some Baptist churches, etc. The Presbyterians, they always drank. So, but now we're in this, this age. I've watched this. I've been a Christian almost 40 years. So, so I've watched this transition of this freedom now. And there's a true freedom here. To say, you cannot say that the Bible forbids any wine or beer or, or any kind of alcohol content from touching your lips and going down your palate to one degree or another. You can't do that. You can condemn absolute drunkenness, but you can't do that. So there's this freedom to drink in our day. Okay, so think about it this way. Here's an analogy to the first century. Picture a 20-year-old young man who ever since he was 15 years old, alcohol meant one thing to him. Intoxication. Godless parties. Alone drunkenness day after day after day in order to kill the pain of purposelessness. Beer and vodka were directly tied to his lostness. And then Jesus, out of the blue, saves his soul, fills him with the Holy Spirit, he is filled with the joy and the meaning in life and in Jesus and in the midst of the congregation of God's people. He is transformed. And five weeks down the road, after Bible study, there's a few of them say, hey, let's go down to the liquor store and buy a few bottles of wine and, and a few six-packs of beer and go to Jimmy's house for four or five hours and hang out. He's terribly confused. He's a new Christian. It's hard for him, because other Christians go home and have a couple beers. It's fine. Have 
couple glasses of wine. It's fine. It's not sinful. For him, it's hard for him to disassociate. He just knew that invitation from let's go get snockered. Let's go drown the pain of our miserable, purposeless lives. He's just been floating around being drunk on Jesus for weeks on end or months. I think in that context, therefore, Paul would say, okay, pay attention, know your circumstances, look around, be careful on particular cultural issues. And Paul would say, if I know that my drinking will cause my brother to stumble, I will never have a beer again in the presence of my weaker brother. I close. Home group may be very interesting this week. Here's the rub. Never compromise on central, salvific, core gospel truth for the sake of unity or other people's feelings. And always love fellow Christians and lost people enough to refrain from some of your freeness in Christ in order to not needlessly offend or cause them to sin. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's grace. Father, we thank you. I know that even a sermon like this in a closing and an application can seem to be much more simple than it is. And even in the New Testament church, it was so complex, these issues. And so my one prayer is this. Just help us through this, first and foremost, be those who want to draw near to you. And beg of you to use us to put down any freedom if we have blind spots because we want to love better and better. We want to glorify your name. We want to reach lost people. We thank you for your constant working in our lives by the Spirit and the word of truth. Amen and amen.